A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is dedicated in honor of the Heilige Mashkiach of the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, Rabbi Aaron Chadash. May he continue to be Mashpia on his tens of thousands of Talmidim in good health. And um, in fact, on the upcoming uh, Mir virtual dinner this coming Monday, May 25th, I uh, had the privilege of conducting an interview with the Mashkiach, so you'll definitely want to see that, um, as long as uh, along with the virtual tour of the Mir Yeshiva in the Beis Yisrael neighborhood of Yerushalayim. Um, you'll see probably more than 30 minutes of Jewish history soundbites documentary footage. You definitely don't want to miss it. Um, it's going to be this coming Monday, May, uh, May 25th. The dinner is starting at 7. My segment is starting at about uh, 7.45. I'm told that, uh, I don't I don't work for them, but I'm told that uh, that donation is suggested but not required. However, pre-registration is required. So go ahead and register at themir.live. Um, and you don't want to miss it. And of course, uh, you'll love to see the virtual tour. So thank you for joining that. Um, tonight's episode, we'll be talking about the mirror, so we'll speak about a completely different angle of mirror history, which um, is related to the mirror in a general sense, but is a completely different aspect of it, really a different institution that came from the mirror in Poland, that's the yeshiva of Besa Talmud, and uh, before I get into that, I want to thank um, the legendary photographer M.D. Yarmish for helping us out with the photo art that we have today and some of the pictures he helped us out with. And I think he even took a couple of those uh, gems. Um, so talk about the base of Talmud Yeshiva in today in Benzenhurst for many years, many decades. It was in uh, East New York, a neighborhood in Brooklyn. So it's one of those uh, topics, the history of the Yeshiva, that we mainly, I mainly rely on oral history. People I've spoken to, alumni of the yeshiva, there's almost nothing written. I've spoken to quite a few uh, alumni who studied there in the 1950s and 60s. They all 
talk about it with the tremendous nostalgia. There is a little bit written, Rav Michal Shurkin has some stories written in his uh, book of uh, memoirs, I guess, and uh, Rav Mordechai Elephant in his quite interesting uh, memoirs has some stories also. But most of the stories that I'm going to relate today is I heard from uh, people I spoke to who learned there, uh, mainly one of my rabbeim at the Mir Yeshiva, Rab Nachman Levavitz, who uh, enriched me with my knowledge of Beis Talmud. So Rabbi Yaman Karlbach, uh, I spoke to Rab Nassim Kamenetsky, Zechrena Levracha, also about his time in Beis Talmud. Uh, Rabbi Michal Shurkin I had the privilege of speaking to also. Ralph Hertzka, another famous alum uh, of Beis Talmud. And although he's not an alumnus of Beis Talmud, but since he knows everything, so, of course, Ellie Neuberger provided some stories as well, so thank uh, thank them all. Now, this is a topic that's hard for me to be objective, and I don't come in as the objective historian here, because I love Beis Talmud. Uh, I never I never, I never saw it even. never, Definitely never learned there, but it's just uh, the history of it. In fact, at my VART, my engagement party, when I got engaged, so Rav Nachman Levavitz was one of the uh, speakers at... Uh, at then my future father-in-law's house, and he said, uh, uh, he said that he says he's talking about me. He says that my favorite picture in his house, in Reb Nachman Levavitz's house, is that of Reb Chaim Vesaker, the Rosh Hashiva of of Beis Talmud. So right away, my father-in-law realized that he got a strange uh, new son-in-law. But um, Beis Talmud was founded in um, in, the, in the wake of the arrival of the Mir Yeshiva from Shanghai. The Mir Yeshiva in Shanghai was approximately 300 students, and they arrive in America in 1947, and now what are they going to do? Sir Blazio Finkel had the Mir Yeshiva ready set up in Yerushalayim, and he was trying to encourage them to come to Yerushalayim. Abraham Kalmanovich, who had sustained them uh, throughout the years in Shanghai and fundraised for them, he tried to set up something for them first in Farakaway and then in Brooklyn, and many of them went to him. Others spread out. They settled down. They started families. They went to work. They got jobs. Some of them became Rebbeim and Rashi Yeshiva. And uh, some of them were still looking for for where their place is. And there's quite a few uh, versions of how exactly it started, but a group of the senior uh, Talmidim of the yeshiva, older students of Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, really the lions of the of the mir of the Altamir of the Shanghai mir. Um, they got together. They weren't going to Eretz Yisrael. They w- didn't want to, you know, be, you know, they appreciated what Rabbi Rucham Kamenovich had done for them. But they didn't exactly want to be uh, under his uh, jurisdiction. They felt they were older. They could be on their own already. And they didn't really settle down anywhere else, and they decided to start a chabura. Really, it was a group. It was a mere kail of single guys. Um, it wasn't exactly a yeshiva, and uh, I don't, it wasn't even called Beis Talmud yet. It was called the Mir Kail, and it was they had a few different locations prior to their settling down in East New York. But eventually, they settled down there. Neighborhood it was a very Jewish neighborhood. That whole area of of East New York and New Lots and Brownsville, that whole area, very Jewish neighborhoods there in the 40s and 50s. And much, much later, they 
came to Benzenhurst. And really, it was a group that didn't fit in anywhere else. They were their own people. They were great people. And um, later on, when American Bacharim started coming, Nassim Kamenetsky and Reb Gershon Wiesenfeld and Reb Michal Shurkin and others, uh, they they called it Beis Talmud when it already became some sort of formal yeshiva, but not not really ever a regular yeshiva in the in the regular sense. Um, most of the original Talmidim of the of Beis Talmud of of the Mir Kail were were like I said, close students of Rabbi Yochanan but also many of them had been close with the Briskarov. The Mir in Poland had occasionally sent their best and brightest to study under the Briskarov uh, for a couple of years. And Rebbe Malin himself was the best example of that, and um, as as were others of that group. Um, the nature of the Mir in Poland was that the Bacharim, the students of the yeshiva, they were almost like they were in charge. Uh, so you have to understand that's the context of understanding who these senior mirrors are, was that they were people who were almost like they were the ones who ran the day-to-day affairs of the mirror back in Poland already. They were the the Magide Shir, they gave the Chaburas, they kind of ran the place, in the, uh, especially after Abirochim passed on. So Beis Talmud was a Chabura of Alta mirrors, but it wasn't really a yeshiva, at least in the initial, initial stage. So who were the founders? They were, like I said, the lions of the mirror, Rebbe Leib Malin, Rebbe Chaim Vesaker, Rebbe Shmuel Kharkover, Rebbe Lezahar Rejewski, Rebbe Yaman Salberger, Rebbe Yisrael Perkovsky, Rebbe Shalom Anasha Gottlieb, Rebbe Leibel Shachar, Rebbe Tzal Tannenbein, Rebbe Levi Kropenya. Not all of them were there from day one. Some of them came a little later. Um, Later on, they bring in a non-mirror, a student of Rebarch Ber and Kamenetz, Reb Shol Brus, who, although he was never in the mirror, he became very much associated with Beis Talmud, especially later on. Rabbi Yaman Pahler was even there for a short period of time, but he wasn't really a genuine Beis Talmuder. So they were; these were people who were like brothers. They were totally dedicated to one another. For the most part, they were the only ones who had survived from their families, some of them never had the opportunity to even rebuild and start a new family. Some of them remained single throughout their lives. Um, and they really had a veneration for one another, and they're really closer than brothers even. Um, very special people, very special group. Rav Shmuel Kharkover, who died quite young, he died in 1960. So he was unique amongst the older students of the Mir. In uh, in Poland and Shanghai, in the fact that he was like a mentor to the younger Bachar in Yeshiva, he was a friend and a mentor. He, the most of the older Bachar in the Mir did not speak or at least speak on a friendly and regular basis to the younger guys on the block, um, but Rishmul Harkiver did. He tried to make everyone happy, especially in Shanghai when these younger guys were far away from their families. They didn't know. They started hearing rumors about what was going on in Europe to the families they had left behind. And he would come along and he would literally be the older brother, almost like a fatherly figure to some of these younger uh, guys. And my uh, wife's grandfather was one of the youngest, if not the youngest, in the mirror in Shanghai. And uh, he, he, the way he would speak about Shmuel Kharkover was... Uh, you know, it was, he would be the closest he would get to being emotional for a you know a litvak, 
uh, when he would speak about him and what he did for him. And he would come to the weddings uh, of the guys who got married in Shanghai, including including him, uh, his grandfather, who got married in Shanghai. And he would make everyone happy and and he would be the life of the party. And uh, tragically, he himself never got married. Uh, he he uh, remained single throughout his life. And here he was busy making everyone else happy um, and uh, trying to inspire them. He gave a shear in Beis Talmud, and one time some, one of his students asked him, why do they learn so slow in Beis Talmud? And uh, it's kind of led, you know, uh, um, famous for that, for going at a very slow pace. And Rishmuel Kharkover said, what are we? We covered a lot of pages, a lot of blot this, this man. It wasn't only in Gemara. We did have some blot in Gemara, some in Rashba, some in the Ketzai Sachayshin, and all, if you add up all the pages of different Svarim that we learned, then we actually covered a lot of ground. We learned very quickly. Why are you saying we learned slow? Rebleib Malin, of course, was the uh, the main catalyst, and he was the one found, main founder. He was the king in the mirror. There was no one who who was like him. Uh, there was no no one no one comparable to Rebleib. Rebleib was the the uh, like his name in Yiddish. Leib is a lion. Um, he was like a Reish Chabura, a Rebbe in the mirror almost when he was an older single. And excuse me, he took a lot of the initiative in the yeshiva. He made decisions there, and he made the most important decision in the Mir Yeshiva's long two hundred year history. He made the decision to take the visas of Sugihara and to ask the Soviets for exit visas. And uh, he and he insisted that the yeshiva stay together during one of the days when the, during that, you know, treacherous, confusing time in 1940, he banged on the bima in the mirror and he said, the yeshiva blight sezaman, the yeshiva has to stay together. Um, so he is responsible for literally saving the whole mirror. He took a lot of responsibility in Shanghai itself. Again, my wife's grandfather... Uh, Told me a few stories about him in Shanghai. He said that that no one, no, none of the younger guys. He, I asked him if he ever spoke to Rebbe Malin. He says no one, none of the younger guys ever approached Rebbe Malin. He was he was uh, at a different level. He said Rebbe Nachum Partsovich was the only one, the Mira, future Mira Shiva, Even though he was younger, he spoke to Rebbe. He said it was so hot in Shanghai that no one wore ja- jackets outside. It was just sweltering. So Rebbe Malin wore a jacket, he slung it over his shoulders, but he wore, he had a certain aristocracy to him. He said, uh, uh, said Rebbe might have been the, he was the greatest Talmud Chacham in the mirror. So I asked, uh, asked my grandfather if, uh, if, uh, if the, you know, the legends that we grew up with were true, or the myths that we grew up with were true, that everyone in the Altamir in Shanghai knew Shas, because, they, you know, they learned with such great, uh, Hasmada. So he said, I don't know if anyone knew Shas. He said, but Rebbe might have known Shas. Rebbe Malin was uh, head and shoulders above everyone else. So he starts based at Talmud. He set the tone. He was very close with Rebbe Aaron Cutler. It seems like Rebbe Aaron Cutler even saw him as a future leader in the American Torah world. Um, he was one of the closest uh, students of both the Biruchim Levavis and one of the closest Talmudim of the Briskarov. And he's actually buried next to the Briskarov on Haram Anuchis. He took responsibility. His whole thing was about Achrayas, about responsibility. And he's the one who set the tone for Beis Talmud in what it should be. Because Beis Talmud was never about the size. It was a very small yeshiva all the time. 
It was about, and this is the key words to understanding the whole essence of what Beis Talmud was, it was Tzuras HaYeshiva, the form of the Yeshiva. What a Yeshiva is supposed to look like. And that's something that they hammered in, Rebleib especially, but also Reb Chaim and Reb Shol Perkovsky, and the other leaders of Beis Talmud about the Tzuras HaYeshiva. Yeshiva has to look a certain way, and this is something they received from Rabbi Rucham and from Kelm, the yeshiva has to be a certain way and you're not allowed to change anything whatsoever. Nothing's ever allowed to be changed from the tradition of what a yeshiva is and what a yeshiva is supposed to accomplish and to grow in Torah and Yeras Shemayim. And the Vesa Talmud was the ultimate and they weren't willing to make any compromises and they would not get, it would be detrimental to fundraising, so it will be. It won't have a lot of guys in the yeshiva. We don't need a lot of guys in the yeshiva. It's it, 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 we're going to keep it exactly as we want it, and nothing is going to change. The tzura of the yeshiva is not allowed to be changed, and this is really kind of in a certain way that um, Rabbi Rucham's vision being realized through this 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 base of Talmud creation. Uh, the you know they, they didn't allow in the early years a payphone in the yeshiva because a payphone is not part of yeshiva. I spoke to an, an alumnus of the yeshiva who told me that many years after he had left the yeshiva, he went back, he was in Benzenhurst for Shabbos, he went back and he went for Shalashudis to the yeshiva and he saw the one giving the shmuz, a contemporary of his, someone his age already. It wasn't uh, wasn't like the old days, all the altamiras were gone. So, so he noticed that when the guy gave the shmuz, he moved his finger or his hand in the same way that Reb Chaim Vesaker used to move his finger or hand when he gave the Shalashudah Shmuz. So he said, oh, I see Beis Talmud is keeping things the same. He's moving his hand in the same way. Now later on, American, like, you know, originally, like I said, it was just the Altamiras, a Chabura. Later on, there were American yeshiva guys who went there, like I said, Reb Nassim Kamenetsky, Reb Mordechai Elephant, Gershon Wiesenfeld, Nachal Lavavitz, I said, Rabbi Yaman Karlbach, Rabbi Shimshin Pincus was an alumnus of the yeshiva. Rabbi Tzakalman is also a Rebbe in the Mir, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Weiss, Rabbi Michal Shurkin, Rabbi Malkil Cutler, the Rashi of Lakewood today, Rabbi Elchaim Swerdloff, was a real base of Talmud family also. And um, it's interesting, I, I um, was once with an alumnus of base of Talmud and we were doing a tour of Harazesim and I brought him to Rabbi Chaim Vesucker's kever. On Harazesim, the Rashiva based Talmud. And he got very excited. And he said, I want to tell you a story I had with Reb Chaim Asakar, and it's good I'm visiting his gravesite today. He said that uh, when he was in the Yeshiva, he was the only one who had a car in Beis Talmud in those days. No other Bachar in the Yeshiva had a car. But you were not allowed to have a car in Beis Talmud because that's not the Tzura of a Yeshiva. So they didn't even let him park his car outside Yeshiva because the Tzura of a Yeshiva is without a car. So he said, so where should I park my car? So he said, you have to park it three blocks away, because three blocks away is not part of yeshiva. That's already outside yeshiva. And he had to park his car three blocks away and walk every time to keep the tzuras to yeshiva. So one day, Reb Chaim Vesaker had to go to a levaya somewhere and go to someone's funeral. So since this guy is the only one who had a car, so they asked him, can you drive the Rosh Yeshiva, Reb Chaim Vesaker, to the levaya? He said, sure, no problem. He has to walk to my parking spot because I can't drive my car to the yeshiva to pick him up because my car is not allowed to be in front of yeshiva. It's not the tzuras yeshiva. And he literally made Rav Chaim walk 
to his car. So he felt kind of bad about that, but it is a great story. So the, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, I, um, I once asked, you know, there, it wasn't so much even about stories. Uh, I asked, uh, someone who had learned in Beis Talmud when Rabshalom Menashe Gottlieb died, he died at, I think he was around a hundred years old. He was the last, he was the last one to go. And I asked him, can you tell me some stories about Rabshalom Menashe? So he said, there's no stories. He had a very boring life for a hundred years. He studied Torah. He learned within the walls of the yeshiva basal He didn't do anything else. That's what that's what it was about. So there is sometimes there isn't even in, even stories, and um, and that's the greatest story. Um, you know, Reblazer Horajeski. It was another uh, basal Talmud legend. Also, someone who never got married. Unfortunately, kind of a bit of a tragic life. Also. And they installed a water fountain once in Beis Talmud. So Lazar Hojeski simply carried it out. And he said, a yeshiva is Nitkin Park. A yeshiva is not a park. And therefore, there's no place for a water fountain. Lazar Hojeski was an interesting story because he was discovered by Rabbi Rucham. He grew up in a town not far from the Mir in Poland. And he was not a yeshiva guy. He was a working boy as a teenager ready to support his family and he was a very strong individual. He was big, he had broad shoulders, big muscles, he was a strong, big guy. And Rabbi Rucham met him, and he was impressed with him. He saw something about him, he saw the potential that he had, and he convinced him to come and change his life around and come to the mirror. And he, so he's really a genuine product of Rabbi Rucham, literally from A to Z, and he was a really, really a fixture in, uh, in Beis Talmud. He davened for the Amr. He was the Chazan every Shabbos morning. Now, was also a very good base of Talmud, a piece of history. Most places in the world, they sing the the uh, the passage in a Shabbos morning davening of Kale Adain. Most places sing it. If you go to a real, real Litvisha place, they don't sing it. They recite it responsively. First the Chazan, and then he's responded by the by the Shul. Everyone else responds. In Beis Talmud, they don't even do it responsively, or at least then they didn't do it responsively. They just read it right through. Why? What's the tradition for that? Because Reblazer Horjeski davened every Shabbos morning, and he had no patience to do it responsively. So he just read it right through. So now it already becomes the custom of Beis Talmud, and therefore they continue till this very day, as far as I know. Um, one of the greatest stories of Beis Talmud history is an old Kelm custom that before Ne'ilah on Yom Kippur, they learn Musr for five minutes. There's a five-minute Musr Seder, before, and it's an intense Musr. People are screaming and crying, and it's, it's the most intense five minutes of the yeshiva experience in Kelm, and Rabbi Rucham Levavitz brought it to the mirror, and Abbas Talmud, they continued it, and five minutes before Ne'ilah, now Nair Tisrael, we're used to this quick ne'ilah, they finish ne'ilah before shkia. But in the real old yeshiva ne'ilahs, they continue it for hours after shkia, and they keep on going. And based on Talmud, they didn't try to finish ne'ilah before shkia, they tried to start it before shkia. So one day, one year, they're davening mincha on Yom Kippur, and it's getting long, and it's getting very close to shkia. And they're nervous that they're not going to get to start ne'ilah before shkia. And the Chazan finishes Chazaris Ashats of Mincha, 
and someone's about to go open the Aaron to start saying Avinu Malkeinu after Mincha, and Rebleib Malin goes over to the Bima, and he bangs on the Bima, and he says, Finif Minut Musr, five minutes of Musr. And they skip Avinu Malkeinu to get the five-minute Musr Seder in before Neila. That, uh, that, that, that took precedence over the Avinu Malkeinu in, in Rebleib Malin's world. And Reb Sholem Menashe Gottlieb, when he was in his 90s already, was uh, waiting at a doctor's appointment, and he had to wait, and was waiting and waiting and waiting. And he got very nervous, and he started bugging out. And the one who was accompanying him said, what's going on? He said, soon it's going to be mincha in yeshiva, and I'm not going to be back in time. So he said, okay, you know, we have the doctor's appointment. He says, I have to daven mincha in yeshiva. Now this guy's in his 90s. He's been davening every day in yeshiva his whole life. He couldn't imagine davening one davening, one tefillah outside of yeshiva. Now, the idea of davening in yeshiva, again, is part of the tzuras ha-yeshiva. Davening was part, and that's also something that came from Rabbi One time someone came to apply to the mirror back in Poland, and Rabbi was speaking to him, was interviewing him, and uh, Rabbi got the feeling that this boy did not plan on coming to davening. Perhaps he had mentioned that in the previous yeshiva, davening was not part of the daily schedule, at least in the yeshiva. So Rabbi Rucham said, in the Mir Yeshiva, the first Seder of the day is Shachris. That's, part, that's the first Seder. That's the first session of the day. So he said, We don't take guys in for a half a day. So if you're not planning on coming to davening in Yeshiva, then just don't, don't show up. So that based on Talmud, it became that davening in the Yeshiva is, is the thing of, uh, of the main... Uh, of the, and that and that was in Beis Talmud. I'm gonna hopefully get to another story about that that really brings it out. Um, one time there was a bris on Rosh Hashanah in Beis Talmud, and I heard this from someone who was there, and uh, and then it was said it was the most confusing day in Beis Talmud history. Why? Because no one was able to remember there ever being a bris on Rosh Hashanah in the mirror when Rabbi Rucham was alive. And therefore, they had no tradition about what the proper attitude and mood was supposed to be. Because if you think about it, in a Musr yeshiva like that, the mood on Rosh Hashanah is intense and serious. And here there's a bris. And a bris is happy and jolly. So what do you do? Are you, are you allowed to smile? Are you allowed to be happy? Are you, do you pretend there's no bris and just keep on being intense? Do you allow to wish him mazel tov? No one knew what to do. There was no tradition. There was no messiah what to do. So it was the most confusing day. People literally were walking around not knowing how to react. A little bit about Reb Chaim Vesaker, who was Rashiva, main Rashiva in Beis Talmud for many years, especially after Reb Malin passed away. He visited Eretz Yisrael once, actually, and um, he um, he uh, he went to the Kaisel. And the one who the one who was hosting him asked him the day before he returned to America. He said, "Would would you like to go to the Kaisel once again?" And he said, "No, I don't want to go to the Kaisel a second time." So why not? What's wrong going to the Kaisel a second time? He said, "The first time I went it was the first time in my life that I went, and I had this incredible inspiration. I had this moment. I had this davening. I had this." His Oyrus, this special feeling and closeness in Yerush Shemayim. And he said, I don't want to lose that. 
I have that feeling of that first time going. And if I go a second time, it won't be the same. And I want to walk out with that feeling that I had the first time. So he wouldn't go back a second time. And he unfortunately also never got married, uh, wasn't able to uh, start his own family. Um, but he but he was the Rashi for many years. Remendel Kaplan, who was his friend from the Mir, also a famous uh, personality in himself, on his own on his own right. So he gave a hesped for Reb Chaim Vesaker when he died in the 1980s, and he said that Reb Chaim Vesaker was greater than all the other Rashi Yeshiva of his generation, because even though he wasn't married, he was still a mensch. He was still personified the, I guess the shleimus, the what a person is supposed to be, what a mensch is supposed to be. So I guess. For all of us married people, it gives us an idea of what we owe to our wives for making us a mensch. But Ermendel Kaplan's point was that Reb Chaim Vesaker, even though he wasn't married, he was able to be such a great person. Um, he, Reb Chaim Vesaker, was one to say, anyone, anytime someone told him, I'll do this beli neder, without a neder, so Reb Chaim Vesaker would say, beli neder meint azichmach azichvetos nishton. Blinader means that I'm swearing that I'm never going to do it. He also, he also used to say that about, I'll try my best. He would say, I'll try my best. So if I, I'll try my best means I'm not going to do it either. He took word very seriously. He, um, you know, it was interesting. He had a, a bacher, a student in the yeshiva, was his roommate at the end of his life to take care of him simply because he was alone. Very uh, interesting situation where... Uh, a Talmud of the yeshiva was actually had to you know live with him and take care of him. Um, the best story uh, with Reb Chaim Vesaker involves someone who was who was um, a student of Beis Talmud, and then he gets married and he remains in Beis Talmud, and then he goes out to work and he gets a job in Manhattan, but he still keeps a strong connection to Beis Talmud by davening in yeshiva every day. And we spoke about earlier about what importance is attached to davening in yeshiva and Beis Talmud. And one day he had a question, he was confused, he didn't know what to do. What happened? He had an early meeting uh, in Manhattan uh, for work. So you know what, the base of Talmud doesn't daven, slow, doesn't daven quick, you know, nice slow davening. See, he wasn't sure what to do. Should he um, shave before davening and then daven in base of Talmud and then rush right over to work for his meeting? But then he's shaving before davening, which halachically is problematic because... Ideally, you're supposed to shave after davening and not take care of your own needs before davening. So that's that's one option. Or to go uh, to go to a shtibel minion, to daven at a regular shul down the block and shave after davening, which halachically would be more ideal. So he didn't know which was the preferable option. So he goes to Reb Chaim Vesaker and asks him, which one should I do? And Reb Chaim Vesaker says to him, I don't understand the question. Either way, you're going to be shaving before davening. And just in case you didn't get that, it's because in Reb Chaim Vesaker's mind, if you daven at the shtibel, you didn't daven altogether, because you didn't daven in yeshiva. So you're going to be shaving before davening. So either way, um, that's, uh, that's, that's the way Reb Chaim Vesaker looks looked at uh, those things. Um so in, on one hand, it was, you know, it was a, might have been, at first glance, might have been a depressing place. I'm talking about elderly, 
singles who weren't married. Some of them died young. Some of them lived almost forever, like I said, with a couple of them lived late into their 90s. It's it's a place that uh, maybe to a certain extent was was not only a place for historians to study, but maybe also for future psychologists to study, a place for PTSD of what they had gone through. They, to a certain extent, had sad and tragic lives. But the beauty of it was that it didn't stop them and didn't pull them down. They they were people who were full of life, who were able to give over to their Talmudim and did not seem like they were depressed or 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 uh, or uh, or full of tragedy. It wasn't like that at all. They kept actually the mirror of Poland uh, custom of getting more drunk on Simchas Torah than on Purim. And that also has related to that the fact that they had hard lives and sometimes the only way to make it happen on Simchas Torah was by, uh, was by you know, drinking a little bit. Um, Rabbi Stroh Mayor Weiss, who was an alumnus of Beis Talmud, he, he was asked once, if it was exciting to be in a yeshiva where the Rashi yeshiva were also single Bachram. And he says they didn't act like Bachram. <laughs> they, they acted like Rashi yeshiva. You know, uh, Reb Zelig Epstein said that Reb Shmuel Kharkover had a horrible life, but was a very happy and jolly person. Why? Because Reb Shmuel Kharkover said, just because I have a hard life, it doesn't mean that everyone else has to suffer. So they, um, there's, there's what to say about that also. And Anachem Partsavich, when he was in America, he visited Beis he, he visited Beis Talmud. The Ilam in Beis Talmud, the guys in Beis Talmud went to speak to him in learning. And of course, Reb Nachum was, was great in learning. And they had a good time with him. They tried to, you know, they tried to show him what Beis Talmud is all about. And he was showing them what the Mir in Yerushalayim is all about. And he said, look, Beis Talmud, they learn a little different, but, uh, you know, each to their own way. Um, Rabbi Stroll Perkovsky, um, so, so someone who knew him related that anytime she walked into their house, he, she saw him helping his wife in the kitchen, helping, helping his wife peel the potatoes. So Rabbi Stroll Perkovsky, the great Rashiva Beis Talmud, is busy helping his wife, uh, peel the potatoes. So Beis Talmud really has two sides. On one hand, there's, you know, it was, it was an elite. They're basatometers, people who studied there, and this is an untranslatable yeshivish word. They had a shtotz. And you know, my wife's uncle told me that when the guys from basatometers would come back to Mir Minion and Borough Park, when they were off from yeshiva, they would barely talk to them, to the younger guys in Mir Minion, because they were basatometers. And my wife's uncle only went to Philly yeshiva, so he wasn't, you know, like the basatometer crowd. On the other hand, there was a simplicity about them. They had no heirs. It was the mere simplicity. Rebleib Malin and Rebleib Arjeski and Rebchaim Sucker, when they were single, Rebleib Malin did get married at the end of his life, but um, they wore short jackets, regular hats. They didn't have a frock. They were clean-shaven because in the mirror, if you were a single bacher, you're clean-shaven. It didn't matter if you were single when you were 40 or 50. And they, and in fact, in the Rashi Yeshiva of the Yeshiva, but they don't wear a talis, right? So it's an interesting situation. Rabbi Vesak, at the end of his life, grew a beard, and I think he put on a different type of hat and a frag. I'm not, I think so. Um, I was in the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim when a lot of the last base of Talmuders died, and their Leviyas came, left the Mir. Rabbi Amitzalberger, Bishal Pekovsky, Bishal Brus, Bishal Menashe Gottlieb, and and that it was at Rabbi Shalom Menashe Gottlieb's Levaya, I remember, um, that Reb, uh, he was the last of the Mohicans. He was about 100 years old when he died. And Rabbi Rucham Kaplan, also Rabbi Rucham Levavitz's grandson, who was also a big base of Talmud, 
He gave a hesped uh, at the Leviah, and his hesped was less about Rav Sholem Menashe and more about Beis Talmud. He describes the base Medrash, and he starts describing where everyone sat, and their shtender, and this corner, and that was Reb Leib, and that was Reb Chaim Vesaker, and this was Reb Shmuel Kharkover. And he tried to, to make it alive. It was very interesting that he felt like this was the end of an era, and he had to uh, describe it in that sense. Um, you know, many would, would go on to say that the real, in quotation marks, Mir, or the real, you know, I remember speaking once to Chazan, and he told me the real Nusach of the Mir for Rosh Hashanah and Kippur is the way they do it in Beis Talmud. Okay. And people will say that, you know, there's something genuine and authentic about the Mir uh, from Poland that had been transferred over at least in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. I don't know about later on, or at least in the 80s, um, about from the Kelm and from the Mir of Ebiruchim that uh, that transferred over to base the Talmud that they're able to take with them and and say, have that corner of purity in uh, in East New York and later in Bensonhurst. To sum it up, I would quote what uh, an alumnus, uh, prestigious and a you know, big Talmud Chacham, who learned for many years in base the Talmud, told me. He said it's hard to describe base the Talmud because it's a place that no yeshiva was ever like and no yeshiva ever, ever will be like. It's a, something that existed once in history, and there's never anything going to be that was like it or ever will be like it. And it has that unique place in history. So this was a little taste of uh, that great place, Vesa Talmud. This was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me. Um, again, we have the new website. Go to YehudaGeber.com. Check out our new website. And of course, the new email is Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com. Geber is G-E-B-E-R-E-R. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at J Soundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.